Hi, and welcome to the Directors UK podcast. This episode comes from our Good Omen screening and Q&A, where the show's director, Douglas McKinnon, was in conversation with fellow director, Metin Hussein. From how Douglas first got involved in the project, to using the music of David Bowie to explain the tone of Good Omens to the cast, the conversation between the old friends was wide-ranging. Just to let you know, there's a bit of strong language in this episode, so watch out if there are any kids about. I hope you enjoy, and if you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a review. Hello. Hello. Um, that was uh, exhausting, just watching that sizzle reel. <laughs> um, brilliant work, Doug. Thank you. That's the first time Metin's ever complimented me. Ever, and it'll be the last time. Good, good. So I just thought I'd start on a high. Um, and anyway, um, so where, how uh, did you, uh, what was the wooing process on this? When you uh, put down your talent and your awards and everything, what did they put down for you? Did they, um, were there scripts? Was there a book? What was there at the beginning? So um, the book was written about 30 years ago by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. And uh, there was a process... I, I joined up, as I said at the beginning, two and a half years ago. And I, I just got a, a, an email on my son's 18th birthday. I was at home uh, in the evening. And uh, it was from an exec I worked with on Doctor Who. And she said, do you want to read Good, Good Omens? I'm here with Neil Gaiman in London. I, I live in Scotland. And uh, I said, well, I can't read it tonight. It's my son's 18th birthday. And she said, well, just read the first 10 pages and just hear, you know, see how you get on. Uh, and I went, OK. And so I just sat down in the kitchen and... Um, called the email up and started reading it and an hour later I was emailing her going back off this is mine <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> tell, tell her we go away but, th- but then then what followed was, was the wooing bit which um, on these big American shows in my experience what you have to do is then pitch it to the uh, to Amazon in this case so that involves my memory is well, well first of all I spoke to Neil actually I spoke to Neil properly after I, I read the rest of the scripts and loved them completely and I spoke to Neil, he was in Australia, and I, I'd, I'd never had met him before, but uh, we got on straight away, and um, it was it felt like it was going to work, and he, he then wanted me to do it, and uh, which was great, but, but then Amazon had to be wooed. So there were six scripts? Pretty much, yeah. So were. he'd written the scripts, and then they he'd were... He'd taken two years to write the scripts. So, so he, he, he basically, Terry Pratchett, virtually on his deathbed, said to Neil you're the only one that can write this. You've got to do it for me. I want to see it, you know, and, and so it became a, you know, a, a last wish. So what did you have to do to persuade um, Amazon that you were the boy? Um, I mean, the process is, I, 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 I didn't have to go to LA in this case. I just did conference calls with lots and lots of people. And I think I think at peak, there was um, 25 people on a one call. Um, Spread it right wow. across London, New York, and LA, and I'm I'm in my living room at home in Fife, <laughs> with all my notes on the on the ironing board, wow. uh, doing a pitch. Because what what you virtually have to tell them is exactly what you're going to do, not 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 a not a broad theory, but actually what you're going to do for and the whole thing. For the whole thing, yeah. I mean, tonally, tone is always a big question, as you yeah. know, and and um, I think the I, th- I think the the turning point for me that just got, got them was actually, and, and Neil talks about this now as well, was in, in probably in one of the last calls that we had, 
where it was either going to be me or not me, um, I said, um, the, the tone is that there is no tone. <laughs> because the book doesn't have a tone. It's, it's, no. a, it's, it's an eclectic mix of stuff. So the only way you're going to do this and be faithful to the book is actually not to have a tone and, not, and, to, and to embrace the different genres, embrace the different situations and characters and not be... Not the be anarchy of the book. And yeah. not be frightened of it. And, mm. and, 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 and I, I think one of the reasons that we now appear to have a hit is because we were... It's funny, I, I, I became kind of the, the guardian of the book, even more than Neil, because he was trying to shed it and give it up. Mm. And I was going, no, 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 there's good stuff in here, we should keep on doing it. So, so for instance, he'd, he'd, he'd cut um, things like when Crowley goes into the hospital and Mr. Young is out in the, in the, in the foyer bit and, he, uh, and Mr. Young goes, oh, you've left, left your lights on and Crowley clicks yeah. it off. Neil had thought that was a big production number. And that, that clip with the lights going off, because he thought it's a big CGI thing, mm -hmm. you know, that was going to happen. And and I, I said, no, it's not. There's going to be a bloke lying on the <laughs> ground with a switch. <laughs> it's it's going to be all right. And so 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 Neil was sort of naive about several. He's not anymore, but he was naive about aspects sure. of production. And that, that I think we we got on well together for that. But anyway, but 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 the process nevertheless took months and months. And I, I went off and did. Um, a couple of episodes of Dirt Gently in Vancouver mm -hmm. while I was waiting, and I, I went to a bookshop. I figured, oh, I better read the book because I hadn't read it. <laughs> right. It's always good. And I was also feeling like um, they were talking about starting to film in September because Michael Sheen's availability was September, mm -hmm. and we were in sort of May, and I was thinking, Ooh. that's six episodes, and that's quite. So I, even although I didn't have the gig, I felt I had to start prep yep. for myself. Mm -hmm. So I went to a bookshop called McLeod's. <laughs> in, in Vancouver, like you would, and and it was a really chaotic bookshop. And you all actually know what the bookshop looks like because it looks like the bookshop in here. Brilliant. I took I I, I used that as a reference for for the bookshop. And is it two shops down from Sky Suites? Suits. Pr pretty, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So um, so I start I started prepping the book and start tearing it apart and and you know do my weekends just just because again. Most people will know what the the lonely weekend thing is for directors, and and I I just use them up in prep mm -hmm. for for that, and it, it was it was good, and listening to Queen music, and because <laughs> that. that was in the book, the Queen stuff, Queen's in the book. The the, the 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 joke in the book was that every time you put a, it was in the book, it was a cassette. Every time you put any cassette into the 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 Bentley's uh, machine, be it Mozart or whatever, it would always turn into Queen's greatest hits eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, once you got the gig, how did you, how do you go about organising all that? Especially with the star cast that you have, mm. it must have been quite a tricky feat. Even with the the really uh, large budget that we had, it was still tight. It always is, isn't it? Mm. You know, it, it, you'd never have enough money. And and with the ambition that I had and that we had mm. to do that thing, and I think the sizzle reel sort of shows even more of the ambition that is to come. Um, yeah. So I think, am I doing this? Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, I got a lesson about how to use a microphone before we started. <laughs> um, but um, what I what I remember from we 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 really had by the time we got I got greenlit and our production designer got greenlit, which took weeks after from June. So we're now I'm in, back in London and and it's June, and it took three or four weeks to to greenlit. It was July the sixth that. I signed the contract, and anybody who works for the BBC knows that that's a green light moment. They they can't green light it until the director signed. So my contract was signed on July the sixth, and we started filming. I think September seventeenth. So, 
No way. Yeah. <laughs> and we carried on prepping uh, at the weekends and, and uh, you know, when we weren't shooting, we were going and recce every So what did you start? How how was it, the, the beginning at least, organised? Did you know where your... You knew where your studio was going to be or, or where your... Yeah. But when did you start looking for locations? We didn't know where the studio was going to be. Oh, you didn't? No. no, no. Wow. There, there were, there were, I, th I think it's fair to say there was a reticence from production to actually believe it was happening. And to commit. And commit. Yes. I mean, for instance, the Soho set, which cost a million quid, um, the um, production was scared about going for that because they thought it might not happen. Because mm. it, it was a crazy sort of summer of just stuff moving around all the time. And um, one, one of the advantages uh, of just having one director was that the starry cast could be accommodated in, in, into the schedule a lot easier, mm. just because I, I, I could shift, you know, to suit Jack Whitehall and suit Adria and suit Michael McKean and Miranda and all these people. I think with two or three directors, which would have been the norm, that would have been a lot harder. Um, it would have been a mess. It would have been a mess. And, and, and also just in simple terms for this audience, it meant that we could go into a location and do and shoot it out for the series. And not, and not go back two or three times. And that, I think that was another advantage. The disadvantage for me was it was, on, it was only me. Yes. <laughs> that, but but, but that, that was the, the, the idea of just having one director was something that when I read it, I just felt like, and I remember saying to Neil, even if it's not me, you should just get one director because, because it's just too big a thing for three dis different visions to come in on. And it's too, uh, if it's going to work at all, it's got to be, the tone is no tone thing has got to be just put by one person and find the vocabulary of the show, uh, you, you know, between me and Neil. And that's that's what happened. Brilliant. Um, how did you organise the set pieces? Were they storyboarded? Were they? Did you do all that as you went along? Uh, it was a traditional mixture. I, I've got a storyboard artist, Mike Collins, who I work with a lot. And um, anybody who's worked with a storyboard artist, you know, you know if, if they get your eyes, then they're incredibly valuable, mm. you know, and, and Mike is, is that to me, he gets what, he sees scenes the same way as I see them. So we actually have a shorthand after working for a lot, you know, in Sherlock and Doctor Who. And we did a pile of storyboards. I sometimes worry about storyboards that, that they're, what, I wonder what they're for sometimes because, mm. you know, we've all experienced people doing piles of storyboards and they, they all get printed up and they stay in the production office for the, the entire nobody, shoot. Nobody, nobody looks at Nobody them. pays any attention. I always think it's uh, more for the producers to know what's in It's here. comfort for the money. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, have, I have to say, we, 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 we did a pile of them for the, for the opening and when, when Amazon came over for the read-through uh, uh, and we basically dressed the read-through room with storyboards mm. and I think it gave them a lot <laughs> of comfort. Uh, did you, how many episodes did you read through? Was it the whole lot? We did all six, yeah. Wow. Yeah, did it over two days. Wow. And what, what was great about it was, was we actually saw particularly Michael and David's chemistry coming together. Mm. You know, uh, I mean, when you hire Michael Sheen and David Tennant, you sort of expect that they're going to know the lines and turn up at the right time and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But we, it was generally, it was about 10 minutes into the read-through when they started performing together. You, you, you just go, oh, okay, this is going to be different and good. And, mm. and it is the stuff that I think that, that um, well, it's, it's, uh, people love them together. You know, and, and I, 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 des I describe them as... Um, in the conversations that we, we, we four, with Neil and me and David, and I, I said, I think for me, they're, they're, they're like a mixture of Butch and Sundance and Thelma and Louise, but, but, but at the point where they're all jumping off cliffs, <laughs> you know, they're in midair and that's what they're like. Uh, you know, and, and there, there was a big worry, um, a classic sort of production worry, uh, and from, from the money as well, that they look too alike. 
that we wouldn't be able to tell tell the difference. And but w we worked on that, and we you know we changed the color of their hair and mm. made sure the costumes were distinctive. And then we got David and Michael to be in the costumes and be in the hair, and it works it works really well. But there, and there's a worry about sunglasses being on all the time, mm. and, and and so on and so on. Um, but David wore contacts, yeah, he, he wears contacts normally, and we had different sizes of contacts for him as well. So when he gets madder, yeah. they, they go bigger, bigger and, yeah. and, and, you know, so the big ones are really uncomfortable, especially, you know, in the sandy South Africa. Yeah, but they look great. <laughs> they look amazing. look amazing. So what work did you get to do with, with the actors? Because those, all the characters are quite kind of, boom, they're quite large. I mean, I don't mean oh, too, too big, but I mean, you know, they're all... Take you know they take that take a space and, and yeah. how did you uh, encourage the actors to be that bold? The, the word bold is the one I was going to use. <laughs> uh, I, I I think I think um, I I really early on. So I, I had a thing I had a thing that might indicate what my thinking was because uh, I, I, I did it for everyone because we were running so hard and fast. And part of the answer that I didn't give earlier was I made lots of lists of stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was my thing. I just went was kept on going through the scripts with. You know, kind of obvious things like the CGI shots or locations or mm -hmm. wh whatever, and, and and making lists after list after list, and, and just trying to work, bring some sort of compartmentalization to it, and for my own head, and that mm -hmm. that was at night and at weekends, and you know, and through the night and all that stuff, and on recce buses, just like we all do. And yeah. um, but with the actors, uh, and with the HODs, there was one thing I did. I, I I played them two David Bowie tracks. And one was Life on Mars, and uh, Life on Mars has got the Rick Waitman piano uh, on it that is uh, allegedly, according to Rick Waitman, the, the best piano solo in the history of popular yeah. music. And people would listen to it and, and they'd go, that sounds great. I said, yeah, but that's not good omens. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd play them Aladdin Sane mm -hmm. and the Mike Garson mad avant-garde yes. you know, piano that, that shouldn't work but does. Yes. And I'd say, that's good omens. Mm -hmm. and, and people sort of got that as a hook. Yeah. Just as an idea, and, and, and the actors all, I, I did it with all of them, including Francis McDormand, you know, and Benedict as well, and they all went, oh, okay, now we've got, you know, mm -hmm. we, we get it, you know. And it, I mean, it sounds so simple, but it, but it actually just it clicked them into our space as well. And, and, and when I say we, it's me and Neil, and uh, we very often would say to um, the HODs, and I would say to the actors as well, what we want you to come with is, uh, and send emails to us, Emails that begin, this might be insane, but mm. I, we don't want you to self-edit. We want you to come and get it. And, you know, and, and I knew that for my taste, I could take it down to the place that was you know, not ridiculous. Mm. So the boldness, it's always to do with boldness, always to do with making decisions incredibly quickly about everything. Mm. So costume, I, tr I, I trusted, you know, you, you, if you're lucky and you get costume and makeup people that, that are as good as we've got, You've got to be bold with them, mm -hmm. you know, and, and make them feel. Gareth Southgate, and it's very strange for me to quote the English football manager, as you, <laughs> as you might know, but Gareth Southgate said a thing that I hooked into as well, where he said, What I want is a team that feels like it's part of a team, but when they get the ball, a, they can express themselves freely mm -hmm. and they feel that they're empowered to do that. And I said, I, I basically, that was with the actors, I, was, I, I wanted them to come in and, and you know, take it on and. and you know, head for the top. And they did. And they did, and they did. And nobody missed the penalty. Nobody missed the penalty. <laughs> and I mean, what, what, what was lovely about the, the, the sort of ridiculous actors that we had mm. is, is, is that um, they, they, all, they all got very competitive, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's some, 
uh, my first AD was Cesco Reedy, uh, who we've worked with for 20 years, and he, he, he said one day, we, we don't have a cast list, we've got a leaderboard. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Because <laughs> almost the top 20 had, mm -hmm. had all led shows or films on their own. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and contrary to what you might think would happen, where they all come in and, uh, and all the egos are splashing around everywhere, mm -hmm. the other thing happened where, where they all came in and they wanted to not drop the ball. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to make sure that they were ready, and right. you know, so that was really lovely. Mm -hmm. That's brilliant. Yeah, no, it was really exciting. It was like it was I like having an orchestra with just rows of Stradivariuses. That's fantastic. Have you and had you worked with Gavin Finney before? I worked with Gavin twice, yeah, and uh, he was at film school yeah. in the year below us, you know, which is useful because I could always call him junior, you know, yeah. <laughs> at any point. Uh, I and I, yeah, I, I, my one feature film, The Flying Scotsman, I done with him, and a film called Gentleman's Relish with yeah. Billy Connolly, you know, and. And uh, and Gavin came on board and embraced all of that stuff that I've just said. And, yes, you know, mm. and, and we all had to. We we, mm. we kind of didn't have a choice, and so we start our, our first filming day was in James's Park, with you know, because uh, um, the show that we did together last nightfall, as you know, we all got used to using a fifty foot Technic crane all the time. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> it was really cheap in Prague. <laughs> um, sad, sadly, sadly for production, um, I got used to it so much that I insisted on it for <laughs> for the UK, and we had. I think 77 days of 50-foot technocrane out of the 120, and it was great. But but so we started on a 50-foot technocrane at, outside Buckingham Palace, Beautiful. controlling you know the whole. You just think, all right, okay, it's just <laughs> going to be like this then. That's and, brilliant. And off you go. Um, should should we open it up for questions? Yeah. Sorry. Oh. Got Romy mic. Um, congratulations on an amazing achievement, and, and um, thank you. Especially, it's great. It's always great to see an episode one that has a kind of self-contained story of its own, rather than something just littered with exposition and cliffhangers for later on. I was just going to ask on the the, the tone and, um, and or no tone. <laughs> um, it obviously it has quite a kind of strong kind of uh, uh, unified feel tonally. Actually, when you watch it, I was just curious about. You obviously started with, uh, I mean, a script written by one of the original authors, which I imagine was quite defined tonally. But I just wondered how, uh, to what extent, a lot of what we see now, in terms of the tone of the piece overall, was kind of done right towards the end, maybe in the editing suite or in post in some way. Um, uh, the answer is a mixture, really. Uh, I, I mean, and uh, but in, ter in terms of the tone and, and the look and everything else, there are some things that we depend on. Uh, David Arnold's music is remarkable, I, I think. Fantastic. Uh, fantastic. Peter Anderson's graphics, he titles and all the intertitles as well. Um, but but uh, but also, uh, I, I think Gavin's lighting. But we 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 work with Gareth Spensley at Molinaire, the colorist, who Neil now calls a warlock, you know, because <laughs> he's extraordinary. And I think I, I I remember saying to Neil, when you started writing this four years ago, we couldn't have made it because we've actually. The technology has caught up with what you, the thing you wrote, te technology and the money, has caught up with what you wrote, and we can now do this. So, so Gareth, to address your point about you know what happened in, in post, so Gar Gareth was doing so. So, for instance, he replaced eighty percent of all the skies in in the grading suite, in the whole of because, of course, we were shooting a, 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 a show that takes place in the summer that never ends, in in the winter that would never fucking end, mm -hmm. in Oxfordshire. And we had snow, and, and it was all the skies were grey. So he replaced all of the skies. He did major sequences. The sequence at the end of episode two, that's you know ripped off from the time machine with all with him sitting in the 
thing. That was all Gareth. That wasn't Milk or, or anybody else. That was Gareth did that on his own. Wow. So, so I was using him to bring the story home in different ways. And some of that, I'd love to say it was all worked out, you know, when I was walking around Vancouver, but it wasn't. It was, it was, it was evolving and changing. And, and, and I, I, th I think my, my daily experience of Good Omens through the shoot and post was a mixture of discovery through extreme skill and fear, <laughs> where, where you just search for a way to do a thing that, that, that the money fits with. You know, and, and, and we had a lot of money, you know, and we, but we were still, so, so for instance, we, so we had, we, we had a thing that uh, Neil went out for a meal with uh, Stephen Moffat um, just before we started trying to cut stuff. And Stephen, you know, how, who I know really well as well, but Stephen said this brilliant thing to him. He said, when they try and make you cut a scene for money, what you need to do is, and this is easy for Stephen Moffat to say, what you need to do is write a better scene <laughs> <laughs> so that you don't feel bad about losing the, the other scene. And so, for instance, when, when uh, we, we've got a scene in the beginning of episode three set in the Globe Theatre, and uh, uh, the, the, the scene that Neil had written was, it was the first week of Hamlet, and Aziraphale and Crowley are there in the crowd, and it's a big hit, and they have a discussion about their different roles in life, and it was completely crowded. So we, we got the Globe Theatre, but we only got it for four hours. Oh. Yeah. Wow. So, so I said to Neil, this is actually not about money. If if we had 300 extras dressed in period costumes and we're doing crowd replication, we'll never even get them out for a cup of tea, far less, you know, do, doing the thing. So, so he, he, he said, well, what if it was the first week of Hamlet and uh, it was a rehearsal? I went, well, that sounds good. He said, well, what if it was the first week of Hamlet and it wasn't working <laughs> and it was empty and nobody had turned up? Great. And, this, and, and, and now the scene, you, you caught it briefly in the, um, uh, you know, in the sizzle reel. Now, no, no, what's glorious is you not only have a much funnier scene that's finished by um, Crowley doing a miracle and making it a hit, mm -hmm. <laughs> but but you also see the architecture of the globe much better than if it was full of crowds, yep. and so it's much much better than than things. So we were, we were still trying to find ways to pull back and cut, and but but trying to go from uh, uh, what I said to Neil was was if if we can't do Plan A, we'll do Plan A A, not Plan B, because mm -hmm. it always felt you know. So we're always trying to so, so it, it have a better idea. Just have a better idea. Trying to trying to all the time, but again, again, it, from this audience, you'll see that the tricks that I was using, some some of them are, are cutting edge technology tricks, but some of them are just little, you know, they're nothing. They're just in cuts. There's miracles in cuts. And it was again, it was a philosophy that um, you, you'll need to see the whole series to understand it. That um, what, what I said very early on was that the miracles that the angel and the demon do should be throwaway as part of our recovery. They should just be, you know, a click of the finger. I was really scared of um, Bewitched, the thing, but but really, it was on the first day of filming. Uh, Michael and 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 uh, David and I were just sort of saying, so what are you going to do? You've got to do something to show it. And 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 I think it was David who said, well, I'm coming from down, so if I do that. And, and Michael said, well, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. And that's what we do. So all, all the miracles in short. Are, are just like I say, throw away from from the angels. But then when Adam, the Antichrist, comes into force properly, all his miracles, effectively, or all, all his magic that he, he creates, is from the perspective of a twelve-year-old. Mm -hmm. So, so, um, and the happy coincidence in this is, is it made all the CGI for his bits much cheaper. <laughs> so, so, the the, um, the 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 flying saucer that you saw in there and the um, Atlantis that you saw. Adam's imagined mm -hmm. versions of it, mm -hmm. not 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 an attempt to be to mm -hmm. do a real thing, mm -hmm. and the Kraken as well. It's not an attempt. Yeah. It's yeah. it's it's a twelve-year-old's version of it. The flying saucer was actually uh, 
designed uh, from my, my, my daughter, who was then 12, gave me a cardboard flying saucer for Christmas one time, and that was the design of it. <laughs> so I, I, I was grabbing stuff from anywhere that I could, just to survive, really. Mm. Sorry, long answer. Thank you. Good Did you have a deadline to work for? For what? For, for, no, just when you knew it was gonna, they were going to drop the series. Or, uh, or were they um, pliant with the fact that you had to do all that no, there's, extra I, work? I mean, Post-production was much harder than filming um, uh, because there was all the, the usual crises over you know, how much CGI we're going to have and mm -hmm. everything. And, you know, um, I can't remember who it was, but somebody brilliantly sort of said, uh, pre-production pre, pre is like aircraft maintenance, maintenance. It's, it's always useful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we didn't do pre-production very well, you know. And it, you didn't and have much time. We didn't have much time. But that, but that, that means that it pops out in post-production yeah. and all the crap comes back to get you, yeah. you know, and that's what happened to us. Any more questions? Sorry. Thank you for... Uh, can you hear me? Thank you for a, a, a great production, Douglas. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. My question is, tonally, in terms of what did the American... It felt like it... How do I put this? It's, it felt like, to some extent, it was a American view. How much, how much did they force you to make it for the Americans? And how much, in terms of sort of the Harry Potter, I suppose, the world, it's obviously, obviously of, of that kind of ilk... Mm. Um, um Z zero forcing. Okay. I've, 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 sorry, is that the end of your question? Pretty uh, much, so, yeah. yeah. Um, thank you for your nice comments. But uh, no, uh, Amazon are the best company I've ever worked with. They they are all about enabling uh, the vision of the show. They um, there there was not again in this company. I could I, you'll understand this. Uh, so we got piles of notes fr from them for each, each episode, but there is not a single note that they forced on us about anything. Um, we got. Um, the only comments on the, on the dailies or rushes were, were 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 positive, and we never we didn't have a negative one to the point where I got scared because mm. it it was so positive that I, I thought it must be negative, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Uh, and and totally all the decisions for better or worse are are, are nail and eyes in the end. Uh, and and the, the tone, I mean, the tone that I was aiming for because the book uh, is is very much about, and I use the word very carefully and precisely, is all about Englishness. Um, the, the 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 feeling I wanted to give was, and I actually I remember again another thing I quoted was Dennis Potter. Remember Dennis Potter did that interview with Melvin Bragg where he talked about the blossomous blossom, uh, and, and and I sort of said, so our Soho is going to be the Soho is Soho, mm. and and our Tadfield is going to be the Tadfield is Tadfield. But he was dying when he said he that. was dying. <laughs> I know that. I know. That. But but what I wanted was a, a feeling where. Uh, the, the entry point for the world, because we really weren't making it for America, we were making it for Amazon Worldwide. We, we dropped on 220 territories a couple of weeks ago. Um, I wanted the guy in Malaysia to be, feel very comfortable about the England that he was coming into. So, I, 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 you know, hence Buckingham Palace, hence the Houses of Parliament, hence all the red buses and everything else. Although, you know, even that, that there was an, a, a, a moment that Neil and I remember where an Amazon exec was talking about this in James's Park stuff. And, and, and he said, what is that building that you come off? <laughs> <laughs> so so you, you, can be as, you can try and be as international as you like, but it was the Englishness of it that we were trying to get to. And, and I, I just had a very strong feeling that if I let the world audience in to a place that they, they felt very familiar with, I mean, George Martin, again, he, he, he was asked about the Beatles songs, about why the best ones worked, and he said that um, um, 
the great songs start somewhere that the audience are very familiar with, and then they, they get taken to a place they're not familiar with, that they would never have started from. So Eleanor Rigby starts with a, a woman looking out a window and ends up that, that she's you know have, having sex with a priest. Uh, do you know what I mean? So, but if you started with the sex with the priest, you wouldn't do that, you know. So, <laughs> so uh, um, and that was George talking, not me. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to do the same thing here. I want, I want, I wanted the world to kind of start with stereotype, and then by the end of episode six, be in a place where, you know, cars are blowing up and you know cars are on fire, that they're, they, they've travelled with us through the beginning, and, and that start, you know, because we start with the biggest stereotypical story in the world in the Garden of Eden. Do you know what I mean? So that that, that was the tactic. Really. And go to uh, Armageddon via Jeffrey Archer. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, I think that's all we have time for. So thank you. Thank you for the brilliant answers and thank you for a brilliant show, Doug. Thank you very much. Th thank you for being a brilliant interviewer. Fuck off. <laughs>